morning, guys. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie, one of the pastors uh, of our church. Uh, I just had a conversation with a brother out on the front lawn after first service uh, that has me feeling like I just consumed a spirit-filled version of a five-hour energy. So like, I'm, I'm jazzed, ready to preach. Like, let's do this. You can go ahead and just uh, podcast second service instead of the first one this week, all right? Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter six. That's where we're gonna be this morning. Uh, you'll be able to track with me uh, on the screen behind me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, passages will be up there in Luke, outside of Luke, other parts of scripture, uh, commentary, quotes, things of that nature. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just go ahead and say, uh, a couple years back, uh, if you were around, you'll remember this. We, we did a deep dive, uh, 12-week series into Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel account, the, the lengthiest section of un, un, uninterrupted red-letter text in all of the Bible. Sermon notes, essentially, from the greatest sermon ever preached. Gonna make this sermon seem uh, awful in comparison because I'm not Jesus. Uh, but I am bringing his words to you this morning, and that's good news, Right. Uh, this morning brings us face to face with with what some scholars would argue to be Luke's version of that great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, just in condensed fashion. Others would argue that uh, this is a sermon that Jesus preached numerous times as an itinerant preacher on the road going before different crowds. And so you get the Sermon on the Mount, you get a subtle, subtly different version of it at another moment in time that uh, many call or refer to as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's gospel account, um, P-L-A-I-N, not the other form of plain. But regardless, what you have here is, is the teaching of Jesus, much of which you do see in Matthew's gospel account in abridged form. And so uh, what I wanna do this morning is a little bit different than what we did a couple years back. Um, I'm not gonna sit up here for 12 weeks worth of sermons and work through Luke chapter six. Uh, we're, we're not gonna get out at midnight tonight, but I, I wanna try something a little bit different because we do have that in the archives. You can go back and you can uh, lean into the more expounded version. We actually have two sermon series that you can do that with that'll get after a lot of this morning's teaching. The Sermon on the Mount series uh, that we entitled The Way of the King and, and then uh, the series on the Beatitudes entitled Blessed that we did, I believe that was more in the realm of five or six years ago. And so there's a lot of content already sitting on the website to get after that deeper dive into things. But, but this morning, I, I wanna work through the entirety of this sermon that Jesus brings before a crowd of people in an effort to, one, help us see how it fits into the greater story that Luke is out to tell, and, and also so that we can see the, this sort of contrast that Jesus is trying to, to bring to the table. He, he's trying to uh, give us eyes to see the, the beauty of his kingdom and the grotesque nature of the kingdom of this world that contrasts the beauty of his good kingdom. He, he's kind of doing that thing that uh, Proverbs chapters one through nine does with lady folly and, and lady wisdom. And, and there are two roads that diverge in a yellow wood and Jesus is basically saying, you got two options here, which road are you gonna take? And he, he contrasts it really well. And so I wanna try to give space for us to see that in its fullness and so let me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll jump in this morning. And because I've got a jolt of energy, I'll try not to fumble over my own words numerous times over the course of our time together. Father, we come to you this morning, grateful that we can even call you our heavenly father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Uh, we will see uh, in great 
fashion this morning, just how desperate we are for Mount Calvary and also the beauty of what you do in our lives uh, on the other side of regeneration, new birth. And uh, I pray that, pray that that both end would not be lost on us. I pray that if there be any, having come into this room this morning who is not a Christian, uh, Lord, that you would um, help to, to bring clarity to the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is, is not an entrance exam. If it were, uh, we'd be done for. And so I pray that we would run to where Luke's gospel account is eventually seeking to take us, which is to the cross. Um, and then I pray, Lord, for those of us who are Christians, that you would plant your flag of kingship deeper in our lives, whether that means new flags of dominion or deeper rootings of already existing flags that you've planted in the past. Lord, would you do that? And I pray that we would see by the time we leave this place this morning that that, that's not only for our good, but our deep, deep joy. That you're inviting us into a dance, into a song, into the blooming of spring. Would you help us to see it? Holy Spirit, would you work? Would you move now? Would you not only give me a feeling sense of the things I preach, but everyone in this room a feeling sense of, of what you intend for us to take away from our time in the word this morning. In the name of King Jesus, I pray, amen. So, picking up, Luke chapter six, verse 12, Jesus has, has just brought before us two teachings on the Sabbath, and, and we now dive into the essence of the aftermath of, of those moments with the Pharisees and the interaction there and the conflict. And we're told in Luke chapter six, verse 12, in these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Right, you'll, you'll remember if you've been around for any part of this series, that the message that Jesus makes central to his ministry is the kingdom. Preaching and teaching, they point to the kingdom. His parables and miracles, they point to the kingdom. That if we're thinking of Jesus apart from the kingdom, we're missing something of who Jesus is and, and what he's about. His baptism in the Jordan River, it wasn't just the anointing ceremony of, of heaven's priest, but the coronation ceremony of heaven's king, having come to inaugurate a kingdom. And that's why up to this point, Luke is showing us the things he's showing us in part, showing us the kingship of Jesus in his rule and reign over sickness and evil, his authority to forgive sin, his lordship over the fish of the sea and lordship over the institution of the Sabbath. Here now, we see Jesus exercising his kingship in a different way, in the forming of a new people, the 12 apostles, chosen in the wake of, of an all-night prayer vigil, showing us something as, as Marilyn uh, attempted to cast vision just a few moments ago of the significance and priority of prayer in the economy of God. The 12 apostles, hearkening back to the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, the new 12 through whom God would fulfill his redemptive purposes, soon to be sent ones with authority to bear authentic testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ not impressive by way of their credentials, yet recipients of this calling by way of God's sovereign appointment. 
The church today resting upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, this is kind of cool. We, we start this great sermon with the foundation, the apostles, and Jesus is gonna end it with the house built on rock and the house built on sand, getting after the foundation of Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone when all said and done. Jesus is a great preacher. He goes on to say, in, in verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place and, and it, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. That'd be cool just to see in and of itself, right? Here again, Luke shows us Jesus's rule and reign over sickness and evil, his divine authority as he speaks, the words coming from his mouth, the words of a king. Here he draws this large crowd of people from the port cities of the Northwest all the way to the southernmost parts of Judea and everything in between. People having come to sit under his teaching, having come to experience his healing power, a power coming out from him, healing any and all who, who touched him. It's in the wake of that incredible display of the miraculous that Luke tells us, verse 20, and he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. Right here, Jesus addresses not humanity in general, but those who identify as his disciples. Verse 20, that's critical. Presenting something of a contrast between kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. As we'll see in a moment, through the imagery of a healthy tree bearing good fruit, the diseased tree bearing bad fruit, the one who builds his house on the rock versus the one who builds his house on the sand. Here, beginning this contrast by declaring the blessing of the association with the one kingdom and the curse of association with the other, revealing something of what, what the planting of his flag of kingship looks like, what it means to come under the rule of heaven's king. This is the essence of it, and it's upside down. Many of us know that. Jesus flips the entire paradigm of human thinking on its head, declaring the good news of the kingdom to those whose poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution are in direct correlation with their kingdom citizenship. So that Jesus says that there's blessing for those who are poor where material poverty meets poverty of spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. There's blessing for those who are hungry, where physical hunger meets hunger for Christ and his righteousness, where they shall be satisfied. There's blessing for those who are sorrowful, where sorrow is the emotional response to sin and its ravaging effects on this broken world. They shall laugh. There's blessing for those who are persecuted and reviled, where the spurning comes as a result of living under the reign of heaven's king. Their reward, Jesus says, is great in heaven. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Right here, the curses follow the blessings. As Jesus declares the, the tragedy of living in accordance with the way of the world, the curse and tragedy of pursuing life and happiness solely or primarily in material things when Jesus invites us to invest our lives in something that'll last. The curse and tragedy of sitting at the table of this world in full-bellied complacency when Jesus offers true satisfaction to those who will come hungry to his table. The curse and tragedy of treating Jesus's teaching with shallow amusement when he offers the only hope of true and lasting joy and laughter. The curse and tragedy of living for the praises of man when Jesus offers the unmerited acceptance of the living God. You see what he's doing? He's just gonna keep on doing it. He's separating the crowd. He's making clear that, that there are only two ways. It's similar to the language of the psalmist who distinguishes Psalm 1 between the way of the righteous and the, the way of the wicked. The one like a tree planted by streams of water, the, the other like chaff that's blown away in the wind. We're either with Jesus or against him. We're either kingdom of heaven people or we're not. We talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount series a couple years back. Jesus doesn't say, think on me, pontificate about me. He goes further than that and says, follow me. We're either on a path that leads to life or a path that leads to destruction. Two paths that he goes on to contrast as he continues to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and its outworking of radical generosity and mercy and forgiveness and love. He says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32, he asks, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, Jesus says, even as your Father is merciful. This is what happens when Jesus plants his flag of kingship deep within our hearts. As we walk in the fullness of what it means to be the Jeremiah 31 new covenant people of God. Enemy love. Complete supernatural love without limits. Agape. Very different from the love of the world. It's really easy to love those who love us. It's quite natural to bless those who bless us as well. Jesus calls his people to love their enemies, to do good to, to bless, and to pray for those who hate, curse, and abuse them. Completely unnatural, supremely radical, unconditional love extended without merit regardless of circumstance. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, Jesus says, offer the other also. It's not the language of attack, it's the language of insult the open-handed slap of humiliation and disgrace that comes in following Jesus. 
not doing what's within our rights, but rather bearing the insult, confident in our kingdom of heaven identity, abounding in mercy and grace so that others might be one to our good and glorious king. He says, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. In Jesus's day, a person could sue a shirt right off of the back of another person, believe it or not. However, a person's cloak, that was a different matter. You couldn't do that. Taking a person's cloak, their, their outer robe was considered inhumane based on the living conditions of first century Palestine. So that even if you did manage to acquire possession of another person's cloak, you had to return it by sundown so that they wouldn't get cold at night. What Jesus is calling for here is incredibly radical. He's essentially saying, give someone what they can't legally take from you in the midst of persecution and then give them some more. That those doing the persecuting might see something of the salt and light kingdom of the king. He says, give to everyone who begs from you. The one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. There, there are those who had figured out how to play the game. They knew they could take advantage of Christians, that Christians would be generous to them. And so they would take and take, which Jesus sees as another opportunity to put the kingdom ethic of love on display. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. What many of us commonly refer to as the golden rule, right? Which Jesus says in Matthew's account, sums up the entirety of the law and the prophets. In other words, it's another way of saying love God and neighbor. Jesus is, is calling for something that nev, none of us could possibly hope to perfectly fulfill in our own strength and power. Can't be done. It, it doesn't require any sort of heart transformation to, to love those who love us and are like us. We're really good at surrounding ourselves with clones of, of, of ourselves, Right? Even the extorting tax collectors of Jesus's day were good for that. Now, these teachings, before they're anything else, they're an indictment, exposing our desperate need for a righteousness, not our own, directing our gaze to Mount Calvary so that if you're a Christian, bells and whistles should be going off right now. Your heart should be leaping like a deer, declaring, praise be to Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets, Matthew 5, 17 who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, 1 Peter 2.23, who, when he suffered, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, who cried out in one of the greatest acts of enemy love the world has ever known, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's the lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness, glory be to God, is credited to sinners by faith forever satisfying the law's demands on our behalf and bearing our sins in his body on the tree. That's where this story's going so that in him, the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. Right, the common theme in the many examples Jesus gives here, it's that of setting fairness aside. How do you do that? You sit with and soak in the reality that fairness would have crushed you under the weight of God's wrath enemies of God, participants in Jesus' wounds, and yet we've been forever reconciled to God who delights in giving us the grace we need, the help we need that we, his children, might reflect 
his disposition, the disposition of our Father in heaven, verse 36, who hates sin and yet makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sending rain on the just and the unjust. If our Father in heaven pours out the blessing of his common grace on all, so should we, his sons and daughters, reflect our Father by being a blessing to all. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this part of Jesus's Sermon on the Plain says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you, do it for them. Think of the people to whom you're tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. These instructions, he says, have a fresh spring-like quality. They are all about new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete and startling everyone with their color and vigor. Right? We're meant to, to see this sermon with the same eyes that we looked a few weeks back into the house of Levi where a great party was being thrown. Jesus is showing us what the inside of the house is truly like. It's bloom, it's flourishing, it's beautiful, it's a dance, it's a song. And so it's right for us to ask questions like these. Who are the enemies, God, that you're calling me to love, to do good to, to bless, pray for, so I can be a part of springtime, the beauty of your kingdom, He goes on to say, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Many Many have assumed Jesus to mean something of of a sort of blanket passivity in judging others, an easy tolerance that throws out the window, any sort of moral distinctions. That's not remotely what Jesus is getting after here. Otherwise, there would be no danger of the house built on sand when all is said and done. There would be no passages on church discipline. That's not what he's calling his followers to. It's not a universal passivity. It's not an easy tolerance. What Jesus is describing here, it's the kind of heightened awareness in the sins of others that hypocritically fails to see and address the even greater sins in oneself, which he makes plain through some pretty hilarious imagery, if you really think about it, as he paints a picture of a blind disciple sitting at the feet of a blind rabbi. Where could that possibly go? Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus refers to the scribes and Pharisees as blind guides, not because they were blind, but because they weren't seeing things rightly. All the while, so incredibly sure of themselves, happily leading others into the same darkened pit that they themselves had fallen into. See it in the church today. 
as those with a pharisaical spirit lead others into the pit of their cold, calculated legalism. As another way of getting after it, Jesus presents the famous log and speck imagery, which too is incredibly laughable. And if I could paraphrase what Jesus is saying, imagine someone with a tree trunk coming out of their eye trying to address the tiniest piece of sawdust in another person's eye. How could anyone possibly see around that gargantuan trunk without some sort of impaired vision? What, What Jesus is describing here, it's worse than a blind person leading another blind person. It's the picture of a blind person taking on the occupation of an eye surgeon. You ever played the game Operation? It's terrifying with 20-20 vision. Who would try that blindfolded? That's the Pharisees. To use the language of one commentator, it's a sensitivity to sin in others that's been desensitized to the sin in one's own heart. We see an incredibly helpful illustration of this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in the wake of David's affair with Bathsheba and his sending of her husband to die on the battlefield God's word tells us, and the Lord sent Nathan to David and came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was, unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Quite the injustice, right? Taking what belongs to another man. Goes on to say, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, he deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Shame on him, David says. Shame on the man who would take what belongs to another man. It's heartless. It's deserving of death. Very next verse of scripture. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. It's you, David. You're the one who's heartlessly taken what belongs to another man. Not only his bride, but his life. You're the one deserving of death, brother. David was so quick to anger with respect to someone else's sin, all the while completely desensitized to the very same sin in his own heart. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this teaching of Jesus, says, we find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. We use some strong term for someone else's sin, but a euphemism for our own. We easily spot a speck of phoniness in another because we have a log jam of it in our own lives. Furthermore, he says, we especially hate our own faults when we see them in others. Wrath toward the speck in someone else's life may come from the suppressed guilt over the same massive sin in our own lives. Log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites, says Jesus. They do not care at all about the speck in the other person's eye. All they really care about is building up themselves in their own eyes. It was the Pharisee who who could stand on a corner uh, and look out on a tax collector and say, thank God I'm not like him. 
And yet it was the scribes and Pharisees whose righteousness Jesus declared to be lacking as they pointed out the the specks in the eyes of everybody around them. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, "What what is fundamentally at stake, I think, is attitude. This is clearly seen in that particular kind of critical spirit found in the gossip. It's not always the case that what the gossip says is malicious. What he says might in fact be strictly true, but it is always the case that he says it maliciously. That is, he speaks without any desire to build up or any real concern to instill discernment. He wants only to puff himself up or to be heard or to enhance his own reputation or to demean the person about whom he is speaking. See, what what Carson gets at is what Jesus has been getting at all along and what he's gonna continue to drive at as he brings it back to man's heart-level motivations, man's heart-level intentions, revealing the beauty of a a kingdom righteousness that, that works its way from the inside out, bringing forth a song that's far more beautiful than that of the scribes and Pharisees. You see him exposing the contrast for what it is? He's showing us what springtime looks like as compared to the cold winter that's, that's born in the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees and the misery of living that way. And he goes so far as to say that those who divvy out that kind of blind criticism, and merciless condemnation, they will receive it themselves. He says, for with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. That's incredibly sobering for those standing in their own minds on one of the higher rungs of God's ladder so high up in the clouds of their own arrogance and self-righteousness that the only place to look is down on other people. Martin Lloyd-Jones says regarding those very words, says, there's nothing I know of that is so likely to deter us from the sinful practice of condemning others and from that foul and ugly spirit that delights in doing so. That what Jesus is saying is that if we really care about truth, we really care about righteousness, Scribes and Pharisees said they did. If we really care about those things, we'll care first and foremost about those things in our own hearts and lives. So that arguably the the first thing that we should do in perceiving to see sin in the life of a, a brother or sister, someone else around us, we should assume first and foremost that our vision just might be impaired in terms of having all the facts on that other person. We should assume that our own sin might actually be worse, perhaps even informing the way we're viewing that other person. That just when we think our, our, we need, uh, our neighbor needs us to deal with his or, or her speck, we're meant to recognize that we might need that very neighbor to help us with our log. Blessed are those who cry out like the psalmist. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me, God, in the way everlasting. See, Jesus is trying to free us up to dance. He's trying to free us from blind hypocrisy by showing us our spiritual bankruptcy before God while at the same time showing us God's infinite mercy in him. Sinclair Ferguson says in his commentary, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment and condemnation before the Lord, and yet instead of experiencing his burning anger, has tasted his infinite mercy. So then another question I think it's fair for us to wrestle with with a passage like this, have we truly tasted the Lord's infinite mercy in Christ? 
Have we truly tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness? See, the beauty of the dance, the beauty of the bloom springing forth out of concrete is that the gospel frees us to discern the sins of others through compassionate, sympathetic, humble, self-judged eyes. Eyes that have taken a serious look in the mirror. He used that Beatitudes language, eyes filled with tears that mourn our own sinfulness first. Eyes filled with meekness that have tasted God's mercy. That's where Galatians 6, that, that, the essence of that thing Paul talks about comes to bear. That restoring those caught in any transgression in a spirit of gentleness. Only the gospel can birth that. Jesus continues, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, heart his mouth speaks. Matthew's parallel account frames this teaching in the context of a warning to beware of false prophets that are recognized by their fruits. Hard as they may try, you, you, can't, you can't staple an apple to an apple tree and expect to see it live for very long. Those who claim to speak for God yet mislead others by altering his word. It's an indictment on the scribes and Pharisees, again, who had established their code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scripture creating a fence within the fence, trying to, trying to shrink the playground to use more, more of that language of what God's calling us into, the beauty of spring, the beauty of the dance, the beauty of the song. How about the beauty of the playground God intended rather than making it smaller for God's people? They had managed not only to, to miss the law's heart, uh, heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules, but they were blindly leading others down that dangerous path the outside of the cup clean, the inside of the cup full of greed and self-indulgence, no poverty of spirit, no mourning of sin, no mercy and meekness, no abandonment of religious hypocrisy and self-righteous glory thieving, no posture of a submitted child dependent upon and trusting his father in heaven, bad fruit birthed out of a bad heart, all the while leading people down that broad path that leads to destruction. See, Jesus, he's really kind here because he's given us almost an entire chapter of, of scripture on what the essence of the kingdom is, the essence of the dance, the song, the springtime bloom, what it is to play on the playground so that if what people are, are peddling doesn't look like that, doesn't sound like that, doesn't smell like that, citizens of Jesus's good kingdom can know to run the other way. And hopefully, so that if we, as we look in the mirror, see that we don't look like that, we don't sound like that, we don't smell like that, that God might bring us to our knees in revealing to us that we stand among the scribes and the Pharisees, and that we might fall at his feet for forgiveness and mercy and grace. He closes out this glorious sermon saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and, and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. 
And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, my words, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It doesn't matter if the house is pressure washed. It doesn't matter if it has new shingles on the roof. It doesn't matter if the HOA is happy with you if your house is built on sand. Right, Jesus has just given this great blueprint for how to build a house that won't be destroyed in the end. Notice that both builders, they've heard Jesus's words. Both builders have sat under Jesus's teaching. The difference is that one has heard Jesus's words and hasn't done them. The other has heard them and does them. Again, Jesus refuses to let us pontificate about the various things he's been saying as if we could just sit around and talk about it and not respond to his kingship. That the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, it requires a decision, requires a commitment. Don't come to me and call me savior if you're not willing to call me king. Jesus doesn't say think on me solely. He says follow me. He's the cornerstone, the builders rejected. He's the sure foundation on which we can build our lives. There, there are those who come face to face with the great storms of life and, and those very storms reveal the shifting sand on which their life has been built and there are those who come face to face with the great storms of life and those very storms reveal the unshifting rock on which their life has been built. That's the now aspect of the, the flood imagery, the, the storms that test the foundation on which we've built our lives and are building our lives but there's also the not yet aspect of that storm and flood imagery, the future flood of God's wrath and judgment, the destruction at the end of the broad path, the diseased tree cut down and thrown into the fire. So that I think one thing we could say is those, those present tense storms that reveal a foundation of sand, and those are God's kindness before the greater future storm comes and it's too late that if our ultimate object of trust can't weather the great storms of life, our ultimate object of trust is not Jesus Christ. I mean, make no mistake, Jesus doesn't apologize for it. The sermon on the plain ends with the threat of judgment. Again, Jesus saying there are only two ways, two roads, not three diverged in a yellow wood. One that leads to blessing and life, the other that leads to curse and destruction. So that, I think it's fair to ask the question of all of us in this room, do you, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Is the fruit of the Spirit real and evident in your life? Sermon on the Plain surely exposes our desperate need for a sin-bearing Savior driving us to look to Mount Calvary. Again, it's not an entrance exam. You treat it that way and you're done for. At the same time, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was good at driving at this, Sermon on the Plain also gives us hope. Hope for living in accordance with the values and standards of the kingdom of God. Hope to dance, hope to sing, hope to bloom, hope to play. Knowing that Jesus died, that we might live out this great sermon by his grace, by the power of his indwelling spirit that we might sing with our lives the song of the, the kingdom and show the contrast to that other song for what it is. 
It's off-keyness. It's grotesqueness of lyric. One foot in front of the other as we walk in the footsteps of heaven's good and, and glorious king.